Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 313th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by the American Health Information Association, AHIMA, as we know them. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Welcome back to the broadcast, Dr. Reamer. Glad to be back, Chuck. I'm also happy to report that I did not have to experience any health care while I was in Panama. That's good news. I'm glad to hear that as well. Speaking of good news, February is American Heart Month, and coincidentally, last Friday, CMS published changes to the national coverage determination for patients with chronic heart failure. Our good friend Dr. Ron Hirsch is standing by to report our lead story this morning. I always love hearing from Ron. And speaking of American Heart Month, Gloria Bryant is with us today on Talk 10 Tuesday to report on resources available from CMS to promote awareness of heart disease. Indeed. And there's more news to report, too, on total knee replacements. Dr. Lisa Banker at McLeod Health in South Carolina is going to report on her facility documents total knee replacement. I'm looking forward to hearing Lisa's CDI report on total knee replacements. Also, Talk 10 Tuesday, we'll be having resident psychiatrist H. Stephen Moffat. He'll provide much-needed context for last Wednesday's horrific high school shooting. Indeed. It's always comforting to have Dr. Moffat with us at this time of national grieving. Last Friday, CMS published changes to the national coverage determination for patients with chronic heart failure. Here now with more of this breaking news story, Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Hello, all. Um, I'm thrilled to be on Talk 10 Tuesday with Dr. Reamer, who will be my co-presenter at the Society of Hospital Medicine's annual meeting in April. Well, last Wednesday, as Chuck noted, CMS released a final decision memo on implantable cardioverter defibrillators, also known as ICDs. This updates the national coverage determination, which is known as the NCD. Now, since many of our audience are not clinical, I should explain that an ICD is a small implanted device that is used in patients who are at high risk of abnormal heartbeats and gives the patient's heart an electric shock to stop that abnormal beating. It is the seventh most expensive outpatient procedure that Medicare pays for with a base rate of $30,960. And when something is expensive, it gets a lot of attention. In fact, in 2015, 500 hospitals had to pay fines of over $250 million for violating Medicare coverage requirements for ICDs. So what's new in this NCD that's worth noting? Well, there are some very specific changes about who qualifies for a device. Since they are very clinical, I won't go into those into detail. The second change is that patients will no longer need to be entered into a registry. That means that there will be somebody in the quality department who will no longer have the task of abstracting all these charts and entering the data online. So you should find out who that person is and see if they want to join the coding or CDI team and do some fun work for a change. Now the third change is the big one. For patients having an ICD placed for primary prevention, meaning they have not yet had a dangerous abnormal heartbeat, the patient must have what is called a shared decision-making encounter and that encounter must use an evidence-based tool. For most medical procedures, the decision-making consists of the doctor saying the patient needs something done and the patient saying okay. 
but with shared decision-making, the patient goes through an in-depth process of learning about the procedure, how it will help or potentially harm them, the other options, the side effects, the costs, and then they put that all together with their own personal goals to determine if they should proceed. For example, the person with heart failure who's dependent on others for most activities and has in their mind a poor quality of life would be eligible for an ICD, but they may decide that artificially prolonging their life is not what they want. Importantly, these tools also address something that is rarely discussed, turning the device off if the patient elects to get one and then at some point in the future, their quality of life and values change, and they decide that life-prolonging therapy is no longer desired. Now, of course, CMS did not endorse any shared decision-making tools, but I have placed a few links to some on my webpage, which is www.ronaldhirsch.com. You should all take a look. There are also many tools for other diseases, from a torn ACL surgery to treatment for varicose veins. So if you're facility places ICDs, find out if you're ready for this new requirement. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch is the Vice President of the Regulations and Education Group at R1 Physician Advisory Services. For more news now, we check in with Dr. Larry Field, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to register to learn about HCCs during a webcast by Rose Dunn tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now is Dr. Larry Field. Good morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me again today, representing the American College of Physician Advisors. Sometimes uh, what's news is really what's old, and um, for what Dr. Banker is also going to discuss, you know, we're still struggling almost at the end of the first quarter of 2018 with how to treat total knee arthroplasty patients. Um, some of us have guidance to go one way. Some of us have guidance to go uh, other ways. And CMS, with their infinite wisdom, um, has left a lot of this in a what I would call a gray zone. And when we're stuck in that zone, it's very difficult to get yourself out because of the finances that are involved, particularly with uh, total knees at you know twenty to thirty thousand dollars a throw. And I don't see how, unless we start getting auditing, which won't occur for some period of time, unless someone reports results of a QIO, how we're really going to find our way uh, fully compliantly um, going forward. So I find that to be a a very interesting thing. Again, that's it's not new news, but it's trying to figure our way through what has been uh, left to us to sort of close our eyes and find our, our way through. The short news today, Chuck, but back to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Field. That was Dr. Larry Field. Dr. Field is a treasurer of the American College of Physician Advisors. It's Tuesday, February 20th, and we're 20 days into Black History Month, and this is the 313th edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by AHIMA. Now you can show them who's the boss of clinical documentation improvement. Bring your CDI skills to the forefront by earning AHIMA's Certified Documentation Improvement Practitioner Certification. Professionals who earn the CDIP credential distinguish themselves as knowledgeable and competent in patient health records. Join AHIMA on March 7th for the CDIP Advancing the Practice Exam Prep. 
This virtual session includes six self-paced on-demand webinars and one virtual interactive learning session. The webinars review the six domains covered in the exam. You'll also learn how to assess CDI workflow processes and how to develop effective physician queries. To learn more and to register, visit ahemastore.org and click on the Data Analytics topic area. Thank you, Clark Anthony. We have a lot of news to report this morning. And here now with the Talk 10 CDI report is Dr. Lisa Banker. Good morning, Dr. Banker. Good morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me as well. This total knee replacement landscape is a real conundrum, and I have several opinions. First of all, it's gray. Uh, I think everyone needs to know that. It's really hard to say there's a right or wrong way here. Uh, There are also financial pressures. C-suites are really leaning in on this topic much more than they have on other similar ones, and I think it's because it's a high-volume, high-bucks high game. Uh, there are also institutional nuances. Some of us, I think each hospital has to think through their own situation. Some of us have doctors who document well and others don't. Some of us have UR resources so that we can do pre-admission review of documentation, but most of us don't. And some can get total knees out after one midnight and a whole lot don't. So I think there's going to, first of all, I think there's going to be a rapid evolution to true outpatient total knee replacements at ambulatory centers. And I think truly there's going to be an expectation that these stays are going to be very short, even if they are actually in the hospital. So I don't think a long-term insistence that our patients need two midnights or more to heal is going to hold up for very long. The thought that many total knee cases can be inpatient, appropriate based on comorbid conditions, I think is also unlikely. If a good lengthy list of comorbid conditions could protect an inpatient status designation, then why did all of us struggle with those discussions with the RAC six years ago? And to me, that was really the ALJ backlog in a nutshell. So in my humble opinion, at least, it didn't work then, and it's not going to work now. A very popular perspective has been to take the words used by CMS in the OPPS rule very literally. And again, I struggle. I think current market pressures are going to force this procedure into a very short stay. I think CMS's claims that they really don't expect current inpatient to outpatient proportions to really change remarkably for this procedure is as much untrue as was their prediction that observation uh, observation volumes were not going to markedly increase in the wake of the two midnight rule. We all know that proved to be very wrong. And CMS has has clearly said the two-midnight rule still applies. Another thing CMS has said is that we should be developing internal policies or parameters to determine which patients are appropriate for short inpatient stays. I do perioperative assessment work, and I can't predict this accurately on a daily basis. Secondly, I've never won an appeal with the statement that my internal policy supports my decision. The payers just have a real knack for trumping my internal policy with their own. So in my best judgment, when all else fails for me, I just say, okay, I'm going to try and get it right every day. And so how do we do this at my shop? Well, most total knee replacements do come in outpatient. And then we reassess the following day, and frankly, we use the two-midnight rule. I think it's far easier to speak to physicians on post-operative day number one and get their plan into words. That's not to say that the occasional patient shouldn't receive an upfront inpatient order if it truly seems likely that they're headed for a skilled nursing facility right from the beginning. But again, for most of us, I think, skilled nursing facility placement is becoming an increasingly rarer situation, uh, particularly in this bundled pay environment we're all starting to get into, where post-acute care is getting limited. So I think this approach is a win if it's done right. 
And to me, uh, each day is right with this approach. Day number one is outpatient, and day number two is inpatient with the appropriate documentation. There's more influence over proper documentation with better access to the orthopedic doctors with the patient in-house, and I think predicting inpatient pre-admission is tough. The reason to stay a second midnight is almost always related to ambulatory difficulty and needing more PT, and that's an easy thing to document. And it seems allowable to me and expected by CMS per their own OPPS verbiage. Secondly, my facility has great success defending what I call one-on-ones, the first night being outpatient or, say, observation, and the second night having a flip to inpatient. With good documentation, we've done very well defending those types of cases. Uh, so I think this is a really compliant way to stay in line with what CMS and others want. For those, uh, if it's one midnight stay, they're going out the door as an outpatient, and that's great. And for those who need two or more, I think we can defend it. And I'm still capturing an appropriate DRG for the hospital, which is important. It's about $6,000 worth of importance. So let's just get it right every day. I think that's a good motto for all of us, and that's what I try to do. Hey, Lisa, I have a question for you. So does your um, institution have some sort of a template or a drop-down list ex- giving people sort of guidance as to what they need to document to do this one plus one? I've got to admit, yes, we do. Um, I actually have kind of put together a templated note for the orthopedist um, that they can use on post-op day one that, that sort of has some decent verbiage at the bottom about why they're anticipating the patient needs the physical therapy and what the risk would be if the patient didn't get it. I know. I'm going to look up at the Q&A, and somebody's going to ask, can she please give this to us? Is there any chance that you could might be able to share something like that with us so we could uh, share it with our audience? That'd be fine. I think I can do that. That would be great. And do you also think that this practice and having the internal clinical policies might help minimize clinical variability? It would. I just can't figure out the actual substance of the parameters. <laughs> I've, I've really tried, and I just, the minute I think some patient is going to fit into a bucket where they're definitely going to need that long stay, I've proven wrong all the times. So I guess doctors just need to use good clinical judgment. Well, thank you, Lisa. That was Dr. Lisa Banker. Dr. Banker is the Chief Physician Advisor for Case Management at McLeod Health in South Carolina. This morning, we continue, of course, our focus on February being National Heart Month. And, of course, here to report on the resources available from CMS to promote awareness of heart disease is the past president of the California Health Information Association. That would be Glorianne Bryant. Good morning, Glorianne. Good morning, and thank you, Chuck. Yes, CMS is promoting an awareness of heart disease through three programs and those benefits of those programs via the American Heart Month this month of February. Those three main resources are preventative services and Million Hearts, which is a resource to help educate, motivate, and monitor patients. And the third is the CDC Preventative Heart Disease dedicated website. Now, for the first, the Preventative Service Medicare covers a full range of preventative services for beneficiaries. That helps to keep them healthy and help find early problems and when treatment is most effective. Now, beneficiaries should always ask their physician which of these services is right for them. There is a one-time welcome to Medicare preventative visit within the first 12 months when you have Part B, and then there is a yearly wellness visit 
that you get 12 months after that welcome to Medicare and, again, after your Part B effective date. But specific to the heart is cardiovascular disease behavioral therapy service and cardiovascular screening of cholesterol, lipids, and triglycerides. CMS has a list of all their preventative services that they can provide. It's in a checklist that anyone can obtain. And I've used the link in my recent article, which I believe is still posted, so you can look at that. And also, CMS has a wealth of information within that checklist that is open and available to anyone, providers, beneficiaries, family members, and there are a lot of great preventative services there. Certainly, our audience today may want to take a look at that resource. And again, the link is to that resource is also posted in the February article. Now, the Million Hearts is a sponsored program by Health and Human Services Department and promoted by CMS, which has a goal to save one million lives in five years through increased awareness, education, tools, and data. And CMS' key message under the Million Hearts is take control of your heart health. So it fits well into this February month. And at the CDC Heart Disease website, you can find the following areas of great information, learning about heart disease, risk factors of heart disease, there's information there, preventing heart disease and what you can do, heart disease statistics, and maps of uh, graphs that they posted there, educational material on heart disease, there's some journal articles, and there even is a neat little quiz on heart disease that's kind of interesting to take. Now, with a number of these heart disease resources, this will serve everyone across the United States. And I'm sure you'll find these resources useful. As a 35-year HIM coding professional, I'm, I'm quite impressed with all these great heart disease information, tools, resources that they're offered to the healthcare community. So be sure to take advantage of these. And don't forget, i got to make my pitch for, the ICD-10-CM official coding and reporting guidelines for all these lovely heart diseases and conditions, Chapter 9 of ICD-10. There's specific guidelines, of course, in place for those. So when you're coding these heart conditions, heart disease, we want to follow those guidelines and the chapter-specific guidelines always. Thanks, Glorianne. That was Glorianne Bryant. Glorianne is the past president of the California Health Information Association. Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Reamer, and thank you very much, Glorianne. You can read Glorianne's report on resources from CMS to promote heart awareness of heart disease on our homepage at icd10monitor.com. Funeral services continue this week for the students who were killed during last Wednesday's mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Joining us now is Tuckton Tuesday resident psychiatrist H. Stephen Moffick. Good morning, Dr. Moffick. You wrote a very insightful article on mass murder and psychiatry shortly after the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre. That was back in 2012, and at that time, the gunman killed 20 kids and six adults. So in your article, you make some recommendations based on that massacre. So now i got to ask you, five years later, have we lived up to those recommendations you made? Well, Chuck, at the risk of sounding foolish rather than insightful five years back, I'll quote from and comment on my five-year-old recommendations. 
Number one, autism, Asperger's, and most every mental health condition worthy of our prime focus should be called diseases, not disorders. Although this distinction can seem to be just an exercise in semantics, there are relevant differences. These are called diseases in ICD-10, but not in American psychiatric DSM-5. Recognizing that these are diseases like any other, and indeed, and indeed diseases which are mentioned in regards to the Parkland perpetrator, might reduce the harmful stigma and thereby elicit more needed treatment resources. Two, quotes, do not make public diagnoses of anyone not personally examined per our Goldwater rule. Of course, this ethical admonition for psychiatrists not to diagnose public figures has been challenged by up to half of psychiatrists in regards to President Trump. And when you hear about the recent death of the Parkland perpetrator's last parent, a history of shooting animals and being odd, almost automatically psychiatrists start to think about grief, sociopathy, and the autism spectrum. Being captured alive may allow for a complete live psychiatric evaluation. Three, this tragedy should spur further study of where criminal behavior ends and psychiatric disease begins. Not much progress has been made on this, though Attorney General Jeff Sessions just said that officials from the Justice, Health and Human Services, and Education Departments were now meeting to study the intersection of mental health and criminality and violence, so we may make some progress. Four, find better ways to educate the public about the early signs of homicidal risk. Thankfully, it looks like some progress has been made here. A citizen did report their concerns about the perpetrated to the authorities, and the prior day, a grandmother reportedly thwarted the homicidal plans of her grandson. Yet, the authorities failed in Parkland, including an evaluative decision in 2016 not to hospitalize the perpetrator, and the FBI not investigating a citizen's concern more recently. Five, provide better resources in order to improve early treatment of homicidal ideation. Positively, new public mental health endeavors that treat gun violence like the epidemic of a contagious disease, using healthcare workers and technology to identify early warning signs in such communities as inner city Chicago is having success. Six, advocate for a special anniversary date or holiday to not only remember the Connecticut tragedy and others like it, but also as a way to monitor how we are doing as a nation and a profession in trying to prevent more such tragedies. Now, how do we keep such two tragedies on the front burner after the immediate attention and grief dissipates into some learned helplessness and a desire to forget such horrors? Instead, embrace empowerment, as the high schoolers are now doing, including picking April 20th, marking the Columbine High School massacre 19 years ago, for a student walkout. And seven, convene a representative body of those injured by public violence and loved ones of those murdered to work on a national task force to reduce mass murder. Although that hasn't happened nationally, it has in some states. Circling back to the Connecticut of Newtown, they did pass tougher gun control measures, as did New York, which also now requires mental health professionals to alert authorities about patients judged at risk. Sooner or later, Chuck, we must make America saner. Thank you very much, Dr. Moffick. That was Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Dr. Moffick is a nationally renowned psychiatrist, and we're proud to say he's a Tucked In Tuesday resident psychiatrist. 
Now's the time for our Tuesday Q&A, and let's take a look at some of the questions. We have a lot of questions coming in, Dr. Reamer. Yeah, you know what? Actually, I have a question for Dr. Moffick first. I have a question regarding um, naming the perpetrator in the media. So there are certain media um, outlets that do not name the perpetrator like you were talking. As you were talking, that was making me think of it. Um, what do you think about that concept? Yes, you noticed I didn't name the perpetrator, and I don't think that's a good idea because there seems to be some sound idea that giving more publicity to a perpetrator encourages others who want to get some kind of notoriety or fame to do something similar. So if you don't mention the person, it just makes it an everyman and doesn't and maybe we'll reduce somebody thinking they're going to get some fame and publicity by doing something like this. So I think it's much better not to mention the person's name. I appreciate your insight. So we do have a couple of questions. Carmel asked, are we going to post the template um, from Dr. Lisa Banker? And the answer was yes. She said she would be able to share it with us. So we will uh, see if we can get that up. And then we had a question for Dr. Banker. If you are doing OBS day one and then inpatient day two, have you found that you're falling out of the one-day surgical stay on the PEPR? That's a good question, too, because you will be creating more one-day stays for yourselves. You know, we've not seen this yet on the pepper because it's also fresh and new, but I anticipate that we will. But I just think in comparison to all the other problems, that's kind of low on my list. And as long as we have the documentation to support ourselves, I think we're going to be okay on that. Great. Thank you. Yeah, do the right thing and do good documentation, and you avert a lot of uh, problems. I would actually like to make a little comment about uh, heart health. I think that uh, a lot of us uh, who are listening, and even myself, we spend a lot of time either sitting or standing at our desks and not really doing anything. Uh, I have a new practice. I wear a Fitbit, and at the 50 of the hour, it buzzes me to tell me I should do something. And I have this new tool. I use Body Groove. It's this like two or two to three minute dance session that I just go dancing around in my office. I'm not sure you can do it in your office, but you might be able to get a little bit of uh, movement uh, at the 50 of the hour for a couple of minutes just to keep your body flowing. So that would be good for your heart. Chuck, I think that's probably all we've got. I don't see any other questions. Did you? Uh, no, Dr. Ear, but I wanted to get your comment on a comment that came in from Catherine who said that her husband... Uh, was an outpatient with uh, total hip replacement, and he spent the uh, the night in a nearby hotel and seemed to be doing pretty well. Any reaction to that comment? Well, I actually do have a comment on that because I just uh, came back from an on-site visit, and one of the, the uh, issues they were having was they had patients who were really not appropriate for OBS, but they were being put in as OBS, uh, and they were, you know, of, co- of course, incurring a lot of cost. And one of the suggestions I made was if you set people up in a hotel and you figure out ways to, you know, change dressings and so on and so forth, you actually probably would have a cheaper uh, stay than uh, keeping them in the hospital in a hospital, but, you know, using up a hospital bed. So I think that that actually is quite an interesting concept. And her outpatient facility is probably not the only ones that are going to do that. And I think that you may see that more. By the way, Dr. Reamer, uh, Catherine, who asked a question at the top of the broadcast, also said there was a registered nurse in the hotel, so that sounds quite practical. I totally agree, and I think that, you know, them being being there, and if they had a problem, they obviously would be able to, 
you know, recruit, uh, you know, get the patient over to the hospital where they can, you know, be treated more intensively and aggressively. Very good. Uh, thanks, Catherine, for uh, that observation, and thank you, Dr. Reamer, for uh, responding to that comment as well as to the questions that came in today. That's going to be a wrap for this, our 313th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and Dr. Reamer and I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Lisa Banker. Thank you very much, Dr. Banker, Gloria and Bryant, Dr. Larry Field, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. And our special guest, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and we hope to have you right back here next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. That's where we're going to focus on Black History Month, and joining us is going to be Dr. Crystal Watkins. Dr. Watkins is going to share her journey as an African-American female in the Baltimore City School District to become a doctor with a Ph.D. as a neuroscientist, and she is currently the director of the Memory Clinic at Shepherd Pratt Health System. Look forward to having you back here for that very, very impressive broadcast. Until then... I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Tucked In Tuesday and IC10 Monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Tucked In Tuesday is a production of ICD10 Monitor.